G'day, my name's Jeremy Cannon and welcome to Property Australia's favourite obsession. See, everyone loves property. We buy it, we sell it, we rent it, we eat in restaurants and hotels, we visit parks and sporting arenas and libraries, we sit in school halls and in offices. It's everywhere. We are literally surrounded by property and we touch it with every step we take. But who designs this stuff? And where does the inspiration come from? And given how our lifestyles have changed over the decades, how have these structures changed with consumer demands? See, an architect must have an eye for design and a head full of solutions. They're part artist, part designer, part negotiator, and at times client mind reader, the minister of finances, and a whole lot of problem solver. They bring the world around us to life, creating communities, places of work, and of course, a place to call home. And here to discuss this and much, much more is Marie Carroll of Planet Architecture. Marie, welcome to Property, Australia's Favourite Obsession. (laughs) Thanks, Jeremy. Hi. Um, I wanted to start by asking you, Marie, what defines good architecture? Oh, wow. I wish you'd uh, prepared me for that question. (laughs) (laughs) That's half the idea. I want to get it off the top of your head. Well, maybe I should speak about architecture in the context of what I do as opposed to, you know, architecture in general, because I don't know much about architecture of airports or, you know, a lot of public buildings, hospitals and all of that. But certainly in what I do, and as I'm saying this, I'm thinking maybe I will be able to expand it to airports. But um, it's something that's fit for purpose, something that, um, you know, is, is functional as in response to a brief um, and um, does not use, and that's my bias certainly, does not use more resources than it needs to um, and makes people happy to, to be there, I suppose. What about Can I answer the, your question? Yeah, what about the inspiration? Where does, where does the inspiration for for the solutions come from? Yeah, inspiration. Well, you know, architecture is, uh, I suppose, between it's it's a technical art, um, much like design, it's applied art. So there is an element of there of free form um, and there is an element of, um, you know, just designing something to to suit a purpose, much like you would design a knife or something Mm -hmm. like this. But even in a knife, there is design as in there is free form. So um, what was your question again? (laughs) (laughs) It was about inspiration. But it's an interesting, Uh it's very interesting what you're saying there because uh, that's, you know, architecture is, it's in a lot of ways it seems very clinical to me because Mm. there's, you know, there's a lot of precision that needs to be, um, documented and, and shown. But at the same point, there's a lot of art as well with regards to the solutions and and also the form that you create. But it's, it's mm. a lot of yin and yang. You know, when you think of it, what you're talking about is the precision, um, all of that is building. And if there was no art, there would be no architecture. So architecture in itself is about documenting these things, but it's not about these things. You know, you only um, you only document a beam or or technical aspects of the drawing because you want it to perform and look a certain way. So that's really the essence of it. Not so much uh, how you're going to, you know, what you're documenting per se. Otherwise, it's just an engineer's product. It's not an architectural product. Does that make sense? So when you went and you learnt architecture when you studied architecture Mm. did you study is a lot of art involved in the course um 
My personal background is actually civil engineering, so absolutely no art there. And then after this, um, I studied two years of interior design. So I did two years of a bachelor degree in the US, which I didn't get to finish because we came to Australia. And that was there was a lot more art there, I would say, uh, a lot more free form again. So it's a continuum of free form, really, or constraints, I would say, between, say, fine arts where, you know, you can do any sculpture you want, you can paint whatever you want on the canvas, very few technical limitations, all the way down to, you know, building something that is just a very practical object with no interest necessarily in what it's going to look like. So my background um, in interior design, there was a lot of um, training about color and shape and mm-hmm. and design generally. In architecture, there is two. Uh, it's not as structured around themes like this. Uh, it's probably there's really two parts. One is the studio where you've got uh, someone uh, sort of coaching you as you design buildings. So you go straight into that. And the other is architectural history, which, mm-hmm. of course, you know, is timeless and is a big source of inspiration and understanding of, you know, what architecture, what role architecture plays. So for you, where does the inspiration come from? You know, having looked at a little bit of the work that you've done, um, I've got my own view on that, but where does where, where do you think it comes from? Um, there is a theme definitely in my work, which is light. And uh, in fact, my business before it was called Planet Architecture was called House of Light. Right. And I changed the name because I was constantly getting calls from electricians <laughs> <laughs> saying, oh, you know, I'm looking for fitting so-and-so, would you have it? And of course I didn't. So, um, and Planet Architecture was really a good reflection of what um, I'm interested in anyway. So um, as far as the form, oh, I suppose I don't like buildings to look like any other building, although, you know, sometimes it doesn't take much to tweak a, a building that you see everywhere in the street to make it a bit more interesting. But my inspiration certainly is about, you know, uh, using natural products, um, uh, having a lot of light in the house. Um, uh, orientation is paramount, but um, we may get into those things later, but orientation is paramount because when the sun is low in winter, and you get it penetrating through a space very deeply because you will have the high windows on the north side in Australia. Um, it really makes the building sing and gives, um, you know, there's a, a term I'm sure you've heard of lately called biophilia. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's only since I heard this term, which is only a few years ago, that I realized I've been doing this for 20 years. So, you know, it's about about bringing nature into into a house. That's my inspiration, I suppose. Because that's looking at the work that I've seen, I would have said that it's it's derived from nature. You know, there's a lot of natural textures and colours and, mm. and, and a lot of, you know, natural feelings about it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you could spot that on the, <laughs> on the site. Good, good news. Yeah. yeah no, it's great. Mm. What about, um, you know, in in your profession as an architect, um, you know you'd be constantly challenged with all sorts of problems. Um, mm. And what 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 is one of the hardest challenges that you've had to overcome? Um, 
Well, let's put it that way. You really have to love the job. And I suppose a lot of people could say the same about their profession. Um, what I love about the job is two things. Uh, first is the design aspect. And the second is uh, relating to clients and sort of delivering for them almost in the midwife sort of way rather than in the supply sort of meaning, delivering for them a house that is going to be, you know, fit for purpose and that they're going to enjoy for, you know, however long they decide to stay. So that's really the job, but that's um, relating to clients, of course, is something you do for the whole duration of the project. The design is much, is maybe, you know, a 10, 15% component. Everything else is precisely about the question you're asking for, is challenge. Mm. So um, challenges are about budget. So everyone, you know, whatever budget people have, um, there is always a challenge because people always want more than they can afford. I suppose that's a general yeah. rule. Yep. Yeah. Um, other challenge is to... Um, you know, deal with uh, councils and and I'd say authorities in general. So things are very procedural and sometimes you deal with people who, um, oh, I shouldn't say people, say departments that are not organised to work efficient, efficiently or cooperatively, I would say, which is even worse. So, you know, that can be an issue. And I suppose the quality, the number one quality you need, uh, actually, as I'm saying this now, probably three. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's patience, uh, resilience and persistence. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yes. (laughs) So, you know, some sometimes some projects will take, you know, just a year to get a planning permit. Um, and even though the scale of what I do, I mean, I'm not doing, you know, the cricket grounds, I'm doing locks, I'm doing heritage work, I'm doing extensions, renos, um, the scale is small, but still it's a significant amount of time mm. that is, um, I was going to say used, but I'm tempted to say wasted. And the reason for this is that planning permits are, um, and some councils do, uh, do work better than others, but uh, um, planning permits are um, have uh, how would you say mon- uh, there is a monopoly of yeah. councils for them, so no one else can uh, grant you one. Building permits, however, um, up to I think it was about twenty years ago, only councils could issue them as well. But now it's been privatized, yeah. and hardly anyone uses councils. Some of them again have managed to become more efficient, but. Uh, some of them don't even deliver count, um, building permits anymore because they worked out everyone's using private Project, building surveys. Yeah. And the reason for this is that, you know, they were just also very slow and pedantic. And I have no doubt that, you know, if planning permits could one day be uh, privatized as well, the issue of them, um, things would go a lot faster as well. Yeah, so, you know, there is definitely a part of you know, knowing they have monopoly, the administration of it all, which is not quite the same as running a business, as you can imagine. Mm. So that's certainly a frustration. Another one, you know, as an architect, uh, when it comes to building, you know, I I use, I have a, a number of builders that I like to work with, but you can't help it that there is always a conflict of interest. 
Builders want to build uh, for the to make the most money and do the least work possible. And of course, clients want the other way around. So you're then yeah. meeting the sandwich. And there will be times where, you know, there, these conflicts are very apparent. Uh, thankfully, a uh, good building contract does a lot to actually moderate that, thankfully. But, you know, that is certainly a challenge. And sometimes when you know the next day you're going to get three quotes for a, a big house that you've been working on for, say, two years, yeah. uh, you may have very light sleep that night. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> You want to make sure the quotes are all right. So, you know, there are a number of, uh, of different um, constraints or difficulties in the job. Mm. Mm. What's the craziest thing you've ever been asked to, uh, uh, to design? Oh, I can answer that one, actually, because I think about it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not one that keeps you up at night, is it? <laughs> no, 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 no. And, in fact, it never happened. Right. But it was um, – I had a neighbour at some point – uh, in fact, they sold the house to a guy who wanted to just do it up and um, and to sell for profit. And he had no idea what he was doing. He ended up actually not selling for any profit. He worked on it so hard. He watched the block, did he? Oh, I don't know what he was doing, but he had no <laughs> idea. I think that was his first project with that idea in mind. But anyway, he, um, he said um, he came to me and said, Marie, I would like to have um, – to put a river under, under the house and have a transparent floor. <laughs> well, I, th- I said to him, you know, I am into nature. You're quite right. <laughs> but not not like that way. <laughs> so, you know, whatever floats your boat. Oh, she, she uh-huh. literally. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the greatest thing, I think, by far. Mm. That's, uh, that's quite funny. <laughs> what about last year? How did you find last year working through... You're based in Melbourne, um, mm. so having to deal with months COVID and lock- months on end of um, lockdown. Mm. That would have been difficult from a architectural and, and a management of projects that were underway. Yeah. So what happened is the projects that were underway could continue. Um, unfortunately, when the first lockdown was announced, um, say March, April. Um, half my jobs disappeared and um, and they were put on ice. So mostly because owners didn't know really what tomorrow was going yeah. to made, be made of. At the time, we had no, no idea, idea. Yeah. absolutely no clue. So people thought, you know, maybe I'm going to die, maybe my job will disappear forever, you know. Mm. So it was not a good time to stretch yourself financially, of course. So um, a good amount of these jobs have come back, um, but... I would say last year um, it was just very, very dead, you know. We How did were, you go, like, with the projects that you're working on, though, like getting trades and, and, and quotes? and that? Well, the ones that were started could actually continue mm-hmm. uh, unless the owners were at home because you could not enter into someone's place. Right. Um, so, you know, there is one job I can think of where there was a – pretty much a wall built between the part of the house that was going to be worked on and the front, but where the owners were still living. But, you know, it was it was legal, um, but it was probably the only instance. So um yeah, so it made it, it made it a bit tricky. New jobs could start like new homes could mm-hmm. start. 
Interestingly, it was actually easier to have tradies because there were so many jobs that they couldn't do because they couldn't go into people's places that they were actually freer to carry out jobs that where no one was living. Okay. So it was it was um, a good time. What what was very tricky, however, is that we had to pick tiles, to pick light fittings, and all sorts of things online, which you know there are things that you know can easily be picked online. Others yeah. not so. Tiles are not good one. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's very hard to pick a tile online because imagine a grey concrete tile six yeah. by six hundred. What looks more like one of those than another one of the same? You know, yeah, on, online you really can't see much. So that made some choices and some deliveries a bit, um, you know, surprising and disappointing, I suppose. Yeah. But, you know, for the most part, a lot of more Zoom meetings, uh, as we were saying, which, you know, are not a panacea definitely for good, you know, for sensing really what's going on in the in the meeting with clients and so on and so forth. But overall, we sort of uh, made through it and hoping it's not going to come back. So we're sitting in your home office right mm-hmm. now and mm-hmm. you mentioned before um, when we were talking before that you've always designed, um, you've always had a home office and always designed or worked towards them in your designs. Do you, do you are you, you know, what's your thoughts with regards to the the role of the home office now? Um, are you talking about people needing studies because they need to work from home? Yeah, I'm talking about the whole work from home movement. Yeah. Um, and, you know, how you've seen and worked with that over time and, you know, whether you're getting that, uh, you know, request from clients and whether you can see it being something into the future or just a quick fad. Uh, Well, definitely for me, uh, since, you know, I used to work for other architects, since I've been working for myself, I've always worked from home. So it's not a new fad for me and it will remain. But there is no doubt uh, that, you know, the the last few new jobs that we got were all extensions. And um, I think for the most part, most of them were driven by the fact that these people spent so much time at home, often with the kids, and realized that, you know, the house might have been fine for everyone to get together at the end of the day after school, after work, but not for everyone to be there all day long every day. So um, so I would say pretty much all of them um, is about are about adding um, a couple of rooms, mm-hmm. one for the kids, one for an adult, sometimes a third one for the second adult because you know, they find that, you know, working in the same room does not always work, yep. depending on what they do. So, and some people have told me that, you know, they're now working permanently from home. So, you know, it's a, I'm 100% sure that is going to be uh, not permanent, but definitely a strong trend that will, that is here to stay. Mm. I think it was only the technology was there, um, the possibility was there, but we didn't know. Mm. And, until we've been forced to do it, uh, there was no real incentive and it might have sounded a bit, a bit odd. But now that we've been forced to do it, to adjust and to see, you know, what works and what doesn't, which means we adjust further, I think now it's here to stay. There are so many advantages. You know, people don't have to commute, waste hours, uh, a bit more freedom. I would find it hard myself to go back to work nine to five in an office, you know. Yeah. A lot more freedom is very uh, appreciable. 
And um, you do lose uh, the connection with colleagues, which again, as we were saying, um, working uh, online or on Zoom or connecting on Zoom with your colleagues is, you know, it's better than nothing, but yeah. it's not quite right either. So I think there will be some, um, you know, plans in there, of, of course, already plans for people to still get together, but not quite as much. So, you know, companies can reduce uh, their their office space and it's cheap all around and people are happier, I suppose. Do you think it's uh, nooks enough now, like a, you know, a study nook sort of thing or do you think a... No, no. Uh, definitely what people need is uh, privacy. Um, so they need an enclosed space with a door. It, the size is not so critical. It's a bit like a laundry. An office mm. has always been a bit like a laundry. You need, uh, the space doesn't need to be big, but it needs to be very well organized. So, you know, for example, you might have wall-to-wall um, -wall, uh, desktops and, you know, really wall-to-wall -wall shelves and, and often acoustic insulation around that room. Yeah. Uh, also strategic location. Some people might have uh, people coming home for, mm. to visit them while they're working, so it might be near the front door. So these sorts of things. But a nook in the, in the uh, living or dining area Everyone's got that yeah. and no one yeah. finds that it works, especially with the kids around. But even without them, you really, you know, the other aspect to think about too is when you work from home, you don't want to finish work and find yourself in the same room. Yeah, You want yeah. to be working in a room, then you close the door and you don't enter that space in the evening, weekends or whatsoever. So, you know, when you get really serious about working from home, you realize you need a dedicated space. Mm. Mm. The design and building experience, um, you know, some people can really enjoy it and some people really do struggle with it. Um, how much do you think that's dependent on the person's attitude? I would say personality, yeah. So um, there are two hurdles I find quite commonly with clients with that is one is um, people can't imagine the space. And so they're scared to, you know, invest in something when they can't see it. And short of building a real scale model for them, you know, it, it, there's so much you can go or do to actually allay that sort of fear. And another, uh, another one, which is common, is uh, when people are uh, scared of change. And what I find often in, in a couple, say, uh, one is the one who maybe have contacted me and, you know, would like to Draw do. the process. Yes. Uh, and the other may be, you know, backseat and quite happy or may somewhat, re um, I wouldn't say actively resist the process, otherwise I probably wouldn't be involved, but certainly more passively, you know, mm. and um, just you get a sense that some people are just scared of change and that's not just about building I suppose it could be about anything do you think a lot of people struggle to tell you what they want or articulate what they actually want that what they see in their head they trouble explaining 100% but you know that's where the skill of the architect comes in really um, the the first meetings we have where we define a brief usually is three to four hours and you know at the end of it, we will have put everything on the table. 
Um, everything will have been said. If there's any doubt in my mind as to what they want or further questions, I will ask them. So, you know, um, people will end up having to think about things they didn't even know that yeah. they wanted. Yeah. And, you know, there are things at the end of that meeting that may be pending that they need to think about. But, you know, it's it's very much part of the job, actually. I wouldn't say it's the... Is there's no need for the client to be clear on what they need. The fact that I'm I'm here in the meeting with them means that there is something that's not working, and we can start with just that, and that, that's fine. We've got a house that's not that far from um, where I live that we walk past regularly, and it it looks like um, it, it looks like the person who designed it went to an architect with a pin-up board of all the things that they like without articulating really what they liked about it and told the architect to put everything into the house. And it's, it is just- A dog's breakfast? It is. It is. Uh A lot of the elements on their own are actually really quite good, but the way in which they've been jammed together is just completely ridiculous. I guess what I'm getting at is do you find sometimes that when people come with a, um, you know, a, a pictures of what they like that, for example, you know, they might say, I like that wall there. Um, it's got the windows at the top and, you know, you've got the timber, um, painted timber. But what they might like is the colour of the timber or, or the texture of the timber or the way the light comes through the window. But they just give you the picture of the window and the timbers below and they can't articulate actually what they like about it. Well, the way I work is I always ask a client for portfolios, particularly a new house, but even an extension if it's significant enough. So I'm not asking them, you know, do you want that detail? You know, so what I ask them is to supply, say, 15, 20 images of exteriors uh, most Mm -hmm. of the time that they like. Um, And I I say to them, you don't need to like every bit of it. It's just, you know, maybe a general feel or, or particular detail, but it's not like we're going to do a collage yeah. of all these details and put that into the house. You still want to have a unique creation for a start, but also something that you know is consistent and coherent. It may be a little bit crazy, but not crazy in the sense that it makes no sense. Yeah. Um, it's it could be uh, an adventurous design, but still there needs there needs to be some coherence in it, and that's definitely the role of the architect. So if a client said, you know, I want detail E, uh, A, B, C, whatever, and I don't care if they don't work together, uh, I want that on my house, um, that's fine. But I would be the wrong person to talk to. You know, then they go and see a drafty, and with a drafty you may say, this is what I want, this is my floor plan, and you draft it for a permit. And then there is no um, censorship, I would say, or censorship's not the right word, there is no guidance as yeah. to what works together. And that's definitely our role is to create, you know, a building that, that looks good um, and and um, overall with those 15, 20 images, you really get a sense of the overall feel and, and style that they're after. So you don't need to really hang it up to too many, you know, a detail or two. It's really more an overall impression that they give you. Inevitably, when you build, stuff just goes wrong. Deliveries are late, trades let you down. Um, That's the builder's problem now. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So the builder 
You sign a contract, the, the owners sign a contract with the builder yep. and I'm the contract administrator. Yep. Uh, the builder uh, commits to a price, commits to a, a lead time, and um, that means that with the price they can't justify a variation unless I approve of it. Uh, and there would be, you know, not too many cases for approval, really. And if uh, if they are late, uh, if someone's a tradie lets them down, or you know, it is their is their problem as well. So there will be some penalties. Not always enforced. It depends a little bit, you know, on the on the context. But um, yeah, it's the builder's problem. So, what else then would the contract administrator do? What what does what does that role actually mean? Well, um, you oversee the signature of a contract for a start. So it's a contract that will have a retention sum. That means that the uh, part of the um, of the payments uh, by the owners, which are regular payments, usually monthly, is retained, mm-hmm. and they will be paid back six months after the completion of the uh, building. So it's called the defects liability period yep. uh, in Victoria. Standard is six months. And um, that means if any defects appear uh, within these first six months, the builder will need to come back to get this sum. So that's that. Uh, there is also room for contract administrator, mm-hmm. um, which you know an ordinary builder's contract doesn't have. And uh, there is also a, a provision that uh, the documents, like the uh, the drawings, are actually uh, what uh, the builder is committing to, as opposed to the builder giving you a list of what they've allowed um, and making this part of the contract. Because all it would take is later the contract, um, the builder saying, oh, you know, I have not allowed for this or this has costed me the, more than I thought or whatever and justify variations. So we don't really need to know what the builder has allowed or not allowed. Um, they need to make sure they don't underestimate anything or omit anything yep. because otherwise they will, uh, they will have to carry that cost. But the contract administrator, um, in other words, you know, approves of claims, makes sure that everything is built uh, according to the plans and, you know, instructs for things to be rectified. But there are also, you know, issues like, you know, some um, something might have been, um, how can I say, there could be design issues that, you know, um, are appearing that, you know, were not addressed could not be addressed earlier that the drawings did not could not anticipate or yeah. you know a myriad of these sorts of things that often either the owners uh, are not aware of it because the if there is no contract administrator involved the builder will just if there is any uncertainty will just make often their own decisions yeah. and the cheapest and easiest way to do things yeah. which is not necessarily how you want things to be done yeah so, in other words, we have a meeting every two weeks, uh, which is usually two, three hours, where we discuss, you know, everything that's been uh, happening on site, inspecting what's been done, uh, looking at what is going to be done, what the owners need to supply, what sort of issues uh, does or questions the builders have, um, 
rectifying anything on site, um, issues of supply, you know, enforcing contract, looking at variations if there are any. So it's actually um, it's a job that is not quite as easily um, identifiable as, I suppose, you know, designing a house, but it's a really important one. And a lot of clients are actually worried about the construction and how it's going to, yeah. you know, if you use someone like Metricon, you mm. sort of know that they've got an oiled process. Yeah. But when you have a custom house designed and a builder that you don't know, it feels very uh, scary to mm. most owners. So it's really giving them, first of all, the assurance that, you know, this is a builder you've used before, that you're comfortable with, that, you know, is uh, good to talk to, is reliable and wants to deliver a good product. So that and also that, you know, in the process, things will be uh, done according to the uh, to the contract. What's your preference then? New homes where you get a complete blank canvas and it's all creativity or renovations where you've got a bit of structure to work with and you've got to find solutions to, you know, merge the mm. new with the old? Um, well, I think if you ask that question to a builder, they'd probably say about the same thing. Uh, it's a lot easier to do a new home. There's yep. no doubt. Um, you don't have to deal with, you know, an existing uh, fabric. There are so many existing elements, you know, even where PowerPoints are and little details, removing vents here and there and, you know, repairing this. And um, so there is a much higher labor component to uh, renovations, about two-thirds and one-third material, uh, whereas with new homes, two-thirds material, one-third labor. So what that means is, you know, with more labor, there's a lot more thinking through things. Yeah. And uh, so, and they also usually are less lucrative because the, um, the budget for reno is usually smaller and uh, the fee is based on um, is a percentage of your budget. So um, they are less lucrative. They are more difficult to do. Um However, there is one thing that is very satisfying is that there is embodied energy in buildings. Mm -hmm. um, there are houses where, you know, you arrive, you know right away it's going to be demolished, uh, no brainer. But other ones, you know, it depends a bit on the budget, depends how, you know, people want to live and what uh, sort of mortgage they're happy to have or whatever. Uh, and that means that, you know, we often end up uh, doing up homes and the result is really satisfying because, you know, it's uh, it's a bit of, um, I suppose, respecting uh, the old building fabric and um, and updating it and, you know, without having to, to start from scratch. So environmentally, it's often a good move, but it depends as well what I call the on the bones of the house. Mm. Some houses that are existing you know, the orientation might be completely wrong. They might sit uh, in the wrong place uh, on the block. Yeah. Uh, the construction, you know, there would be so much work um, to create a flow in the house because the layout is so bad that, you know, it, you wonder if it, is, if it is worth it, whereas other ones just lend themselves more. Mm. So as far as the choice, you know, it's sometimes uh, we... Uh, we approach clients and we we have to discuss for quite a while whether we're going to renovate or or demolish. Yeah, interesting. Mm -hmm. 
You've got a lovely thick accent. Thick? <laughs> well, it's thick well. compared to mine. <laughs> I don't, I'll show you what the thick accent is. <laughs> See? You know what I mean now? Okay. So you, <laughs> you've got a lovely thin accent. Thank you. That's better. <laughs> um, obviously, you know, from France, you've had the, the, the pleasure um, of living in different parts of the world. Mm. How does architecture you know, change around the world? Well, that's a general question. There's really only uh, two countries that I know well enough to be able to make statements like that. But certainly in France, um, heritage is huge. Mm. So, um, you know, there is actually less public buildings are another story, but as far as uh, housing, um, there are covenants that are very, um, very definite and that um, are not negotiable in every region. So, you know, depending on where you live, you may need to have the roof this color, this angle, and have a gable versus a hip and, you know. Yeah. So yeah. it's very, very limiting. Um, but, you know, that's really what makes uh, the place charming. Yeah, yep. Um, and in, um, in Australia, you know, anything goes. And sometimes I have to smile at what is called heritage here. Because, you know, it's it's only very new and it could be totally ugly and, and you know, but you learn to respect. There is also mm -hmm. true heritage, but sometimes uh, there are buildings or structures, uh, one comes to mind, a, a telecom tower around here that is nominated to uh, be become heritage when really it's an absolute eyesore that no one wants to see. So, you know, you wouldn't have this sort of thing necessarily in, uh, in France or yeah. possibly in Europe. But, um, yeah, so, you know, different, um, different views. In Europe, they also do a lot of restoration, obviously. You know, some buildings are really old. Uh, I've got a cousin who lives in a, in a castle. Oh, wow. It's a small castle, but nevertheless. Still it is a castle. A, yeah, yeah. And um, he's about my age now, late 50s, and he spent the bulk of his life renovating it, <laughs> so, you know. And, and whether you get... Um, help from the government to do that or not i'm not too sure what it depends on i think he did get some but mm -hmm. you know it's labor of love yeah. really restoring um restoring restorating yeah yeah i i imagine it's you know it would almost be a bit like the sydney harbour bridge or painting it that by the time you've restored it it'll almost start time well to start okay again, isn't it's it? not it's not a big castle as you probably imagine so <laughs> it's a castle it's got three stories and um it's got Probably, I'd say five rooms, six rooms each story. Six rooms, actually, probably. So you know, it's still it's still sort of a decent size. Yeah, pad. decent size. And how old would it be? Probably seventeenth century. Yeah, fantastic. So, uh, but yes, uh, that's uh, you know what a lot of people have to deal with, and you see that on uh, Grand Design with Kevin MacLeod because yes. they do a lot of that sort of work in uh, in the UK too, of course. Mm -hmm. What about America? You spend a little bit of time there. Uh, well, I was not trained as an architect there. Um, I was living in California. There was definitely a style there. I don't know if you've heard of Eckler Homes. No. It's a very mid-century sort of style, which is actually very back in fashion now here and there. Um, so it's a post and beam sort of uh, modern modernist type. Okay. Um, yeah, does does look good, but that's the particular pocket that we were living in uh, south of San Francisco. Um, otherwise, yeah, they've got 
you know, same sort of, I suppose, um, different architecture, but same sort of history in terms mm. of how long they've yeah, been that's there. A short history. As Australia, yeah. yeah. Sure. I, I was going to make that point about France too, that, um, you know, it's a, it's a much older country. Mm. It's, you know, obviously much more history. We, we don't have that, you know, really, well, we don't have that long history um, from a um, from a European point of, point of view. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the, from my understanding, there's a lot more, um, like, you know, in Australia, we, we still like our space in Australia, don't we? We still, mm. you know, crave maybe not necessarily the quarter acre block anymore, but we still do crave and expect, you know, some level of land, the ability to walk outside and put our, you know, wiggle our toes in, in some grass, don't we? Yeah, very true. And, um, you know, a lot of people are against development. I'm actually all for it. Mm. And I wish, you know, Melbourne's way too big. I wish, you know, if it was a city in Europe, it could mm. probably be contained in less than half the area, mm. which means that public transport would be a lot more developed and, you know, you wouldn't have people depending on the car, uh, the the uh, train network here is so radial. Every everything takes you to the city. Yeah. But you know, what if you need to go to another suburb? Yeah. And it, you know, you go to the city, takes an hour, and back to another one, another hour, yeah. where you could be traveling along a grid. So yeah, it's um, it's the US were even worse, mind you. But here, it's not great compared to Europe. I'm definitely um, pro-development because I think the city should be densified. Um, and, you know, interestingly, though, I was raised on the eighth floor of an apartment building in the mm -hmm. middle of Lyon with my brother. I think we turned out okay. <laughs> but, you know, he now lives in the countryside. I don't live in the country, but I certainly have like to have a yeah. courtyard and a front yard in a unit. We don't have a backyard here, but... But, you know, it's not like I wouldn't want to. Yeah. Um, I think it's a little bit of a quandary. I mm. think it's really nice and important for people to have access to nature. And um, I think in, you know, in Europe, a lot of people live in dense cities. And um, your nervous system, I, I remember, does get used to it. You know, if I go back to Lyon now where my mum still lives, mm -hmm. I'm, I feel... Um, I can't stay more than three, four days. You know, she's in the middle of town. It is so noisy and polluted and I really need to go. You know, there's a park a little bit outside of town where I need to go and and uh, and breathe really yeah. and um, have a bit of uh, space and silence. So you, you do get used to everything. Um, but I think, yeah, Australians have been a little bit, you know, spoiled, I suppose, having uh, the, the backyard. But I think people live differently now anyway. You know, a lot of people are happier with a unit. There is less time to maintain things. Yeah. And as long as you've got a unit with a good courtyard that allows you to entertain, um, you know, that's probably all you can hope for. Um, there is, I'm sure, still some, uh, you know, backyard cricket happening, but <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's as big a thing for some reason. Yeah, yeah. I think you're probably right there. But there will always be a market for mm. homes with a backyard. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Mm. What's the one resource that you go to that you use that you couldn't you couldn't deal without? Um, do you mean? Well, can you clarify? Like, is it? there um, a, a particular food? <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm not sure what you mean. <laughs> I was thinking, is there a, a, a particular um, website or a, a particular um, a designer's book, or is it um, you know nature, or is there you know is there like a is there something that when you sit down to design, you always use, well, even hmm. maybe even maybe council regs, you know, not you know making sure that you understand the council regs. So is there is there one thing that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, if we go down the path of say council regs or um, or planning controls, as they're called, um, of course you're going to check, you know, what controls apply. Uh, what sort of you know uh, what sort of land you're dealing with? So you need to have a, a land survey uh, before you pretty much start doing anything. Um, I'd say as far as you know, uh, and also the adjoining properties, uh, what sort of you know overlooking, overshadowing issues you might have. So that's I'd say definitely the sort of things you'd be looking at before you even start um, any design um, otherwise I think you know I remember before I studied architecture I would just uh, drive in the street never look at buildings much mm. and then as I started studying I uh, often would you know just look all around either as yeah. I walk and I, yeah. or I drive which can be a bit dangerous I have to grant you <laughs> that but, uh, you know, you sort of get inspiration from, from buildings, from anything really, just sometimes a colour strikes you. So it's not like a reference book, obviously. Yeah. But it's, um, you know, it's, it's exciting, I find, in the last, say, 30 years I've been involved in design to see how things change and how you can date anything. You know, you can say, oh, that's an 80s house, that's a 90s house. Yeah. We don't realise because things change quite quite slowly you know uh, all things considered but um, there is always a flavor of the time and it changes all the time and you sort of sense it and adjust and get excited again and then you know I've been there done that and then you try something else so you know that that part I find is very exciting and fun. Could I ask you then what the best advancement or technological change that you've witnessed since being an architect, whether it be a particular construction methodology or a change in attitude or um, a particular product that you use? You know, because I specialise in sustainable design and maybe we can talk about that a little bit too at some point, but um, I like to use uh, materials that are more timeless and also low-tech so, you know, I like to use pine studs and I like to use recycled bricks and just and corrugated iron, just very simple products. So there are high-tech products out there. They're probably more used in commercial world because they're a little bit more specialised um, items. They can be more expensive, commercial. Builders are more used to installing them, not so much domestic ones. Um, but also, you know, you can definitely create uh, buildings that are uh, pleasant to look at, nice to live in, warm and sunny without having to use, you know, uh, a lot of tech. So others might disagree with me, but that's certainly my take on it. So that's a, like a really good segue into, um, um, you know, that what, what drives you, you know, Planet Architect. 
um, you know, how do you use, how, how do you use those those products to, to create those Well, things? you know, it's not, yeah, design, design uh, for uh, sustainability is, is easier in some ways because you're not just relying on the look or, or the function. Uh, you have a driving force and a lot of it is the sun. So, you know, wherever I go, I always know where north is. Um, no, let me, let me correct that. There are times I get lost as well. <laughs> <laughs> but north is definitely a driving force. Yeah. So, you know, you want uh, your buildings to face north. So if you have, for example, a block of land in the suburbs uh, that, you know, has got north at the front, uh, as in uh, yep. in the street, you know it's going to be a challenge because yeah. um, where you want to have north is where you want to have your big openings. And mm. if it's at the street, of course, you're not going to face your backyard for a start. Yeah, and and it's you're going to have issues of privacy. So um, you know there are ways to address that by having roofs that will take in the north light from the middle of the building to the back. Mm-hmm. Or maybe creating pods that are separated with some um, with some corridors or hallways or links, shall we say, uh, to make sure that you replicate what's called the solar frontage further back on the block. I mean, there are some strategies, but um, ideally, if you can avoid buying a block like this, that's better. I remember years ago, these clients who were so excited, young couple, they bought a block in Calorama. Oh, my heart sunk when I saw it. The block was north-facing at the street and it was so steep and the oh, no. the fall was towards the south, yeah, right. which means the that, you know, gonna be, yeah. so we were going to, you know, it had to be some sort of split level or something like this or two-story. They're going to have two stories facing south and the single story at the top facing north. You know, really, really a bad block. We made the most of it as much as we could, but you know, the the type of block that you buy will make it um, easier or uh, not so easy to build a sustainable home. So orientation is key. You want to have few windows facing um, east and west because they overheat, mm. and north you want to have a few windows there for cross ventilation. But for the most part, if you have, say, a north at the back, that's great. If you have north at the side, that's great too. We tend to always build the building along the south uh, boundary. So if north is at the side, you actually sort of reorient the backyard from the backyard to the side. So, yeah, 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 yeah. So there are a number of strategies to make that happen. Um, and even if the orientation is not correct, at least you can work with thermal mass. So thermal mass is that heavy material like brick, like concrete, uh, that has to be inside the building. So just to give you an example, and most people don't understand what thermal mass is, is that like insulation? No, it's not. Insulation is like the doona you put on your bed. You mm-hmm. wouldn't put a piece of concrete on your bed, would you? Mm-hmm. Would you count on that mm-hmm. for insulation? No. no. So thermal mass is, imagine you've got a big black boulder that sits in the sun all day and you bring it inside the house at the end of the day, it would release its heat very gently and keep the house warm for the whole night. So this is what thermal mass is. So if you have, say, a concrete floor, which you do not cover with an insulator like um, like wood, like mm-hmm. 
like cork, like carpet, mm -hmm. but you leave it exposed, it will, you know, get the sun rays, especially with the right orientation. So it will start to gently heat up and it will regulate the house temperature all year round, all day long. So um, that also means that at night in summer, for example, you open all your windows, let the house cool down, the slab cools down, mm. and then uh, you close everything and the slab again will release that cool energy the whole day. So it, it definitely acts as a regulator. And um, reverse brick veneer is the way to go. This house, for example, has got reverse brick veneer. What that means is that the brick is on the inside and then outside of the brick you've got your stud wall with the insulation. And the reason we do this is very much like, um, imagine you've got an esky. An esky is pure insulation. Imagine that's the house that is well insulated on the outside. The thermal mass is the ice block. You always put the ice block inside the esky, don't you? Mm, mm, mm. What we're doing with brick veneer is wrapping the insulation or wrapping the esky with ice. You see what I mean? I've always wondered about that, why they brick veneer had the brick on the outside. The to me, it makes more sense to do it that way. Yeah. The number one reason, of course, is brick is so durable. Yeah. You could look at a building yeah. that's 50 years old or much older, again, for that matter, and, you know, the mortar might be, if it was lime mm. and, you know, a bit older, of course, but the brick itself, you know, it's an amazing product. There's hardly anything apart from concrete that will that will last as long. You know, you don't need to repaint. You don't need to change your weatherboards and all of that. So... You know, and nothing wrong with having brick inside and out. But you do want brick, you do want some amount of brick that has insulation around it. What about um, um, when it comes to, like you said before about the thermal mass, that you want to be able to have windows to be able to uh, let the heat out, etc., to let the heat escape. But what about the whole, um, you know, drafts and air tightness of a house that, you know, some houses, especially older houses, tend to be very drafty, very cold. Mm. Um, you know, how, how do you go about, you know, dealing with that and what's your thoughts on Well, there's, uh, I'm sure you've heard of the passive house concept that's come to, um, it started in Northern Europe where houses are very much sealed. Um, so because it's been found that in houses that are well insulated, which is far from being the case here anyway, but in houses that are well insulated, they, um, the loss of heat was mostly due to the fact that the houses are uh, drafty and uh, not airtight. So um, there are now a number of measures and products that are used and have been for the last two, three years now, where we use this you know, tape around windows and we tape... Uh, the um, the wraps that goes around houses, we tape that to the to the structure to make sure we minimize uh, the uh, the draftiness of houses. Um, the other thing is depending on the windows that you pick, for example, anything that slides, unless it's been designed uh, expressly to um, exclude drafts, Anything that slides, so we're talking double hung, sliding doors, that sort of thing. Because you need to have a bit of a, a gap for, you know, the, the sliding operation to happen, they will never um, insulate as well as those that can be 
where the sash can be effectively pressed against uh, the the frame, particularly with some um, weather stripping like rubber and that sort of thing. So casements, awnings tend to be better in that in that way, or even uh, bifolds because bifolds operate basically as a hinge door, and you can in fact press you know the yeah, um, right, so yes. that's right Put yeah the have that the doors. Yeah, really good right. contact. Yeah. So these are, are always better. There are things, you know, that you can do to improve all doors and windows that are drafty, but for the most part, um, you know, from a, an environmental point of view, it is often a good idea to replace all doors and windows because they are drafty and also because, you know, they're always single glazed and double glazed is is a must really. Double glaze is pretty standard in Europe, isn't it? Very much so. And Northern Europe now has triple glazing and pretty much as standard as well. I remember when um, I was still quite young, um, in I think it was in 74, there was, or 75, there was the first petrol shock, they called it. Mm. And, uh, you know, prices increased enormously. And in the course of two or three years, all the apartments, all the houses had secondary glazing in the in the city, in the country. So, you know, this was a, a shock. And all of a sudden, you know, people realized how much um, they had been wasting energy and they were paying a lot of money for it now. So, you know, a country that is dependent on others 100% for energy will always be a lot more thoughtful about how it's used. And I think here we haven't actually done that because we, you know, we have resources. Well, it's very cheap. It has been, yeah. Mm. But, yeah, so over there the other thing too is that um, the average consumer is very well educated when it comes to insulation, what type of insulation, how to install it. I find here people have got no idea, mm. you know. So it's it's a hard uh, for uh, there is no pressure, I would say, on builders to actually um, uh, provide houses apart from regulations, but to provide houses that are really truly well insulated. And you know, I don't want to be um, to be mean, if uh, for lack of a better word. I think there has been a lot of work uh, done lately and most builders are now more aware of it and, and try to do the right thing. But I think regulations are a little bit behind as well and I wish there was more pressure. You know, the sort of clients I see, because they are more interested in, in, in sustainable design, they are more interested to have the right product, but yeah. they're not necessarily more educated about it either. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's, not, it's not part of the culture to have that sort of technical knowledge. And I think uh, it would help us. For example, if you um, buy a, a decoration magazine in France, the last 10 pages will be all about technical details and how to install this and make sure that, you know, your your floor is watertight, that, mm. you know, your, your, you ventilate whatever. You know, it's much more interest um, in the culture in those, in those things. So here, yeah, there isn't that. And maybe it comes from, you know, being in a newer country with a milder climate, lots of resources. I don't know. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting too that um, like that whole whole idea of, you know, um, you know the, the Australian um, outback house with the eaves and stuff and yet 
you know, a lot of houses, um, you know, have very small eaves, you know, in the in the city and stuff, don't they? That there doesn't seem to be a lot of thought about, you know, the cross ventilation or, or exterior blinds or shades, mm. and we, we don't seem to use that that sort of stuff in our construction. Well, you know, there is a regulation here in Victoria that all new houses need to have a six star energy rating. And sometimes I look at new houses and I wonder how they got that because the insulation is wrong or, no, sorry, the orientation is wrong. Insulation is minimal. It's only single glazing. You know, sometimes I have to wonder. And there's no doubt that it's not just about the numbers. It's also about the comfort. And, you know, how much money do you put on that? I don't know. Um, The other thing is, you know, old homes, uh, with say eaves all around or verandas all around were designed for a time and, and place and also for people who did not use to live the way we do. Mm-hmm. So when the English came here, I reckon they went, oh my God, this is an oven. So all they were thinking about is shade. Yeah. And there were people who for the most part were living outside. So they were they were hardy, you know, they didn't mind the cold. And in fact, they were used to it, given where they were coming from. So, you know, it's a very, they're very general statements here. But the way uh, we live now, we've become uh, sissies, you know, we we, <laughs> we work inside, you know, a lot less physical exercise, we're much more sedentary. Yeah. And, and truly, Melbourne has got a weather that's very similar to the south of France. It's not like the tropics at all. Mm. So it totally warrants now, you know, not having those big eaves because they cut, mm. they cut all your passive solar gains. Mm. So, you know, some people go, oh, you know, big eave on the, on the north, uh, on top of the north-facing uh, doors or windows. Well, no, that because, you know, it's going to be a cold house. So we want to minimise the... Um, minimize the amount of energy that the house is going to use, minimize the heat load and minimize the cooling load. So with the uh, with the design, both the building envelope and also how much sun it can catch, you want to make sure that um, you know if you need to heat, it's going to be as little as possible. And if you need to cool the same. And also how you heat and how you cool are also relevant. You know, are you going to use energy efficient equipment? You may not use gas. You may use uh, all electricity. You may have solar panels on your on your roof. So, you know, there are many different ways to actually address uh, the cooling load and the heating load that you've reduced to start with. I don't know whether you um, – I don't know how to actually kind of answer this, ask this question. You might not. No, but in Europe, it seems like they use a lot of uh, like geothermal styled uh, yeah. heating and cooling yeah. where it's done on a domestic level. Yeah. But I've never seen it done here in Australia. And I, 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 Why is that? Why don't we use that, you know, geothermal, you know, where they dig down whatever it is, a couple of metres and run the piping and run it back through the slabs and et cetera. Mm. Why don't we do that? Well, here you you do see it, but it's for commercial installations. Um, I think in Europe they do use ground to air, but it's um, mostly like here air to air. So you know your heat pump will take air from the outside, extract the heat from it, and reject it at a lower temperature. So uh, even if it's zero degrees, 
takes, which it wouldn't be very often in Australia, but takes the air at zero degrees, rejects it at minus four. So that's, that pumps the heat. Um, it's a lot more logistically involved to go and in, deep in the ground. I mean, there are people who sell it, but whether you actually are financially effective compared to the air-to-air, -air, probably not. So I have installed a number of times air-to-air -air heat pumps, mm -hmm. particularly for hydronic systems, um, but not so much the ground-to-air ones. Um, they are quite expensive uh, babies. We're looking at $15,000. And they last about 15 years. Um, in Europe, they tend to use either that, and I'd say mostly that these days, or in the past, apartments were, or are still for the most part. I'm talking about houses here. Mm -hmm. Houses, usually it's a heat pump in Europe. Apartments is still probably fuel, like it was when I was growing yeah, up. Right. Yeah, yeah. So um, heat pumps... And, and, you know, it's a little bit above my pay grade here. I don't really know, but I can't. The heat pumps I know would not be suitable for large apartment buildings. But, you know, there might be other ones. I, I'm not really sure. Yeah. But, yeah, it is expensive. They only last 15 years. So it's um, it's about $1,000 a year. But I don't know. I think um, in France particularly, there are also a lot of incentives. I'm thinking of electric cars, for example. Yeah. You know, an electric car here, I've got a hybrid myself. I paid 26000 for it at the time. Uh, the government there would have given me $10,000 just to buy it. Really, you know? right. So there are a lot of incentives like this with anything you do. Here that you uses probably $6,000 in taxes to the government. <laughs> That's the new thing. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, you know. The, the policies are completely different. And uh, over there, they definitely encourage, again, because they don't have the resources, you know. Yeah. So they they see themselves as dependent and uh, they don't they want to decrease that dependency, basically. Mm. I've seen you use the phrase green concrete. Oh, yeah. It, do you want to explain that a little bit? Yeah, so green concrete uh, will have, first of all, aggregates that are recycled. Um, and it also has fly ash, which is a byproduct of some industry. Don't ask me which one at the moment. But uh, fly ash is uh, used to replace part of the cement that is used in concrete. And cement is a very polluting product, um, both in its manufacture and in curing. So it releases a lot of carbon dioxide. So you can use typically, but, you know, engineers will have to be involved uh, always anyway, but... About 35% of the cement can be replaced by fly ash and then, again, recycled aggregate. What other things can people use um, like that in a, um, uh, a more eco-friendly way of, of... Recycled materials, definitely. So recycled bricks are no-brainer and they also add so much character to, to a place. Um, uh, double glazing, of course, is a big one. Um, Recycled um, uh, recycled timber for, say, flooring, um, for maybe arcs and, and um, skirting boards, doors. You know, there's so much you can use. It is usually more expensive to use recycled products. Not so much for recycled bricks, but recycled timber will mm. be more expensive. But you also get, you know, a lot more character. Yeah. And if you can't use recycled timber, just use pine or, you know, some... 
uh, or maybe a, a nice laminate. Uh, they're really nice, good laminate floors because, you know, our forests are dwindling and uh, using hardwood products, even though they, they do swear that it's uh, sustainably harvested, but a bit of a furphy in my, in my view. Um, I actually did six months of research on that topic in my very early days of, um, in architecture. And, um, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of the labels, um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm taking a risk maybe in saying that, but I don't think, uh, warranted really when they say it's, you know, sustainably harvested or yeah. what have you. I think we need to retain every single tree we have and just use plantations for sure. Mm. We, um, the way in which, as we discussed before, but in life is becoming progressively disconnected from nature. How do you, as an architect, bring nature into a house? Mm. Well, a bit like what we were saying before, biophilia is what I realised I've been doing for 20 years. So it's, you know, it all starts with bringing the light in. Um, a house that is sunny in winter, uh, that you know might have some um, green um, perspective. So that means, for example, if you have your uh, large north windows against a fence, that's not going to really mm. bring nature in. So you try to set them back as much as you can, and use and use the design in a way that you know your um, living areas, windows and doors will be will have some garden space to look onto. And if not that, at least a, you know a, as large a balcony as you can and have some some plants in there, have some plants inside. Um, use again natural products, you know, not not plastics, more you know if you can use stone, brick and 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 plasterboard, there's definitely room for it as well. But you know, timber, particularly, you see what you're looking at mm. here is all pine. Mm. It's not. It's still very effective looking, but it doesn't need to be you know expensive or or sustainably you know um, unfriendly. So yeah, I'd say they're pretty much um, the the number one um, criteria. You know, you want to bring nature in, but you also want to isolate yourself a little bit from nature. That's what, you know, the yep. house is doing. It's, it's protecting you. Yeah. So, and with that, you know, you're protecting nature at another level by making sure that, you know, you need as uh, little or few resources in the house to keep it warm and comfortable as you can because these resources come from some natural environment somewhere else. So it's important to preserve that too. If people wanted to uh, explore the topic a little bit more, where would you suggest that they go? My website. <laughs> um, well, there is a, a website called MyGov, uh, which uh, will give you a lot of that um, information about sustainable. Uh, MyGov, what am I saying? It is MyGov something. Um, uh, that's all right. I didn't mean to throw throw that. Yeah. That oh, here on. it is. I, I know I've got the book. <laughs> That's it. It's called It's called Your Home: Australia's Guide to Environmentally Sustainable Homes, and it's produced by the Australian government. So it's updated, I think, every year. Um, it's about design for place, and it's like a, a large compendium of materials uh what am i looking at materials energy water 
Yeah, we didn't talk about water. Passive design, design for climate, choosing a site. So, you know, it's a chunky book. Um, and, yes, yeah, it's, it's an Australian government book. Um, so that, that is a great resource. That is a sensational reference yeah, material. Yeah, no, it's a great res resource. And it's also one that is, um, you know, does not have vested interest into a business or a product mm. in particular because there's a lot of, I'm sure you've heard of it, of greenwash. Mm. So, you know, everything is green these days because yep. it's marketable, but it doesn't mean it really is. No, that's a very good guide. I highly recommend it. Yeah. Is there anything else that you'd like to convey to our listeners um, about what you do or, or how you do it? Um, or, you know, what they could expect from an architect or? Hmm. Uh, well, I can only speak for myself as to what they can expect from an architect. Um, I know for me it's really important to deliver homes that are very comfortable, that people will get a kick out of every morning, you know. I, I find myself that because I've been living in houses that I've designed for many years now, that... You know, people might go, oh, it's been such a cold winter. And I go, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's such a bubble of comfort. Um, they're also, you know, um, they're also uplifting, uh, I think, to, to uh, look at. And I just enjoy sharing, you know, this sort of uh, comfort, um, not just thermal comfort, but, you know, Really, the a sense of um, of um, place making, I suppose, uh, which is you know comfortable, beautiful, sunny, warm, dry, healthy. Um, I think that's really what I I try to achieve. And um, yeah, I think once people, I've noticed that for myself, but also clients have told me. Once you live in a house like that, mm -hmm. there is just no return. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's, it is so vastly different. I remember uh, a few years ago, I did a new house for uh, some clients who they weren't farmers, but they had lived in the countryside all their life in an old farmhouse that had veranda mm -hmm. all around and, you know, the place was mm -hmm. cold, badly yeah. insulated, you name it. And as they were retiring, they were probably, and I really asked, but they would have been in their early 70s, I'd say. They came to Melbourne because their, two of their three children were here and the grandchildren and everything. So, um, And they wanted to build something that was affordable but comfortable. And so we did that. And they wrote to me a couple of years later and said, you know, never in our life have we lived in a house that comfortable, which I thought, you know, was and, and not necessarily, and in fact, not more cheaper to run that what they had been living with, with that was a sieve, that house they were living in thermally. So, you know, it's, uh, it's really the reward of the work is to... Um, get people to appreciate, you know, when people get to appreciate the difference between where they've been living and, and uh, what they have now. And, you know, these houses, in fact, interestingly, yesterday I got a call from a client who, um, who I did a reno for uh, eight years ago now. She was pregnant and she said they now have the eight-year-old and the six-year-old. 
And she said, um, we, we sold this house because it's now a little bit too small and we're buying another one and, you know, we know what it's going to be living in there. Can you do it up for us? Because not only is it dated, but it's going to be a house that's going to be, you know, yeah, yep. cold uh-huh. in the winter, yep. hot in the summer. And, you know, they want something, a layout that flows, mm-hmm. a look that's more modern because it's quite a, a dated house many ways, but but also a house that's more comfortably or thermally comfortable, which is what they've been used to now. So, yeah, that's very much the, the reward of the job. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a home, isn't it? It's where we, where we live. Yeah, sometimes. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think the homes that are not, you know, Europeans stay in their homes so much longer than we do here. You know, here the turnover is much greater. Yeah. Does it have to do with the fact that houses are more comfortable? Maybe it does. I don't know. I think, you know, it, there are other probably other reasons as well having to do with, you know, newer populations, larger distances, whatever, I don't know. But um, definitely when a house is more comfortable you you have and well-designed, you have less reason to move. A lot of people move because, you know, sometimes I look at um, house plans and, you know, you barely have room for that dining mm. table. It's mm. just not functional. It's not practical. It's cold. It's hot. It's never right. And so, you know, people don't feel as settled. Mm. And I think um, feeling settled in this world is a big deal. Mm. It really is important. I know for me that um, I've always really enjoyed going on holidays and staying in different houses. Mm-hmm. Um and being able to flick through and choose where you're going to stay. Um, and it's amazing how, you know, some houses, you know, you know are just going to be, you know, maybe a great location but the house itself not so good. It's amazing the difference of how cold some are and how mm. warm others are. Mm. And it's just I find that really quite fascinating, really interesting for yeah. a um, yeah a good learning experience to yeah. understand what works and what doesn't work. And whether it was designed that way intentionally yeah. or not, you know, you can't really tell. Well, you can see or you can feel or experience mm. the ones that are designed and designed well as opposed to yeah. those that aren't and especially those um, – that are, are, you know, a cookie cutter house that's just been put on a block because that's the way the plan goes on the block without mm. thought about, as you said, orientation or whether it's the correct house to be placed in that area and, you know, how it's built, you know, thermally, et cetera. I yeah. find that, I've always found that really interesting. And, you know, that's what I was saying. It's a guiding force. Uh, you know, the same way that you might have a, a color that you like and a color you don't like, but the paint is going to cost the same. Mm. You can have a window face the right way or the wrong mm. way. It's going yeah. to, the window is going to cost the same. But what it's going to do to the house is completely different. Yeah. So a lot of times it's not even about cost. It's mm. just having that as an objective, mm. you know, to make it happen. So, you know, if it's not going to cost any more, why wouldn't you mm. go that way? And still a lot of times, you know, you can tell the awareness here is quite um, is not quite there. You still see a lot of houses that could have designed some other way without being more expensive and would have been a lot more pleasant to live in and economical to run. It's a big takeaway for investors as well because often investors don't give that stuff as much of That's enough right. thought as what they should. Yeah. That at the end of the day, our view is that you're in the accommodation business 
um, you know, being a landlord. And if you have a, a property that isn't, um, you know, isn't orientated correctly, that isn't warm and isn't inviting, it doesn't have good flow and good spaces, then you're going to have continual turnover of tenants because Absolutely. tenants aren't going to be happy in the yeah, space. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's that toss between spending too much money yeah. um, on something that's not going to bring you the extra revenue and, uh, and you know, and I'd say almost serving people and, you know, and making good money out of something. But I know that I have a unit um, in, you know, in an adjoining suburb, which is only two bedroom plus study, two bathrooms. It's new. It's a lovely design. It's got some rake roof, crestry windows. It's got hydronic in the floor. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's really, it looks good. It's got some recycled timber, um, double glazing. Yeah, I mean, you name it. Um, I'm probably spent an extra for that unit, an extra maybe fifty thousand out of the three fifty that it costs to um, to do this. But gosh, no uh, no problem finding tenants. Yeah. The first tenant I had in there, she stayed three and a half years. She only moved because she got a job in Sydney. Yeah. But she said, you know, this house. She always told me this house is more than a house for me. Yeah. You know, it was so comfortable. She was so at ease in there. You know, and when you think of it, of course, usually the worst houses are rental homes. Yeah, correct. Because no one wants to invest in them. So correct. they will be the draftiest ones, the ones that, you know, are neglected. So, yeah, you, I'm sure you do get more turnover in houses like that. And, sure. and the flip side too, you know, when you go to sell it, when you go to sell it, True. then it's going to be cold when, exactly. when the potential buyers walk through. Yeah. It's going to have that, you know, yeah. that crappy feeling as you walk through yeah. and yeah. if it doesn't flow and have the spaces, then mm. it's, you know, you get mm. stitched up on the way out when you try and sell it. It's Yeah. So I think you're right. It's really about short-term versus long-term mm. thinking. Mm. Short-term thinking, uh, which is a little bit the scourge of the building industry here, is make a quick buck. Uh, long-term is to actually improve the quality of things and you will get that money back later either or, in fact, by having, you know, um, finding tenants easily, your tenants staying longer, and as you say, selling for more too, for sure. Mm. Marie, I've really enjoyed talking with you. Lovely, likewise. It's been very mm. interesting, and it's, I mean, I love architecture. I, I love the the touch and feel of it, and, uh, you know, I think, as you said, there's, you know, a window costs the same whether it faces the right way or doesn't face the right way. It's, mm. um, yeah, mm. it's something that I think we all need to think about a little bit. <laughs> Indeed. If people want to know a bit more, um, where's the best place to get in contact with you, Marie? Uh, www.planetarchitecture, planetarchitecture.com.au. I'll mm. put that definitely in the show notes. Definitely encourage you all to go and have a look at the website. It's got some really interesting stuff. I spent mm-hmm. a bit of time poking around. So, yeah, congratulations to you. Thank and you. Yeah, look, I'll wrap it up there. Thanks for everyone for listening. Um, of course, if you need any help in your property journey, we'd love to uh, to be your partners. So get in touch with it. And of course, don't forget to subscribe, like, or leave a rating or review for Property Australia's favourite obsession. I've been your host, Jeremy Cowan, and don't forget, let's keep obsessing about property. Any opinions or recommendations expressed should be considered general in nature, as they do not consider your personal objectives or financial circumstances. You should therefore consider these matters yourself before deciding whether the advice is appropriate to you and if you should act upon it. Should advice be sought, please seek an appropriately qualified advisor. Investing may not be appropriate for everyone, as there is inherent risk and the possibility of loss when investing in financial assets, just as there is the possibility of profits. While useful for identifying patterns, 
History and past performance do not guarantee future performance. Counterflag has a commercial relationship with guests appearing on this production. 